Church family, this morning, as I mentioned earlier, we begin our Advent series. We've lit the first candle. We're here to study this morning the hope candle or the, or the prophecy candle. Those things are interchangeable with what we call it, but Advent is a message of hope. You see, the, the birth, the life, the eventual death, the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the metaphorical center of human existence. You see, it's so pivotal, so pivotal is the birth of Jesus Christ that time in our lives is measured by his birth, where we have our calendars, our years are determined by whether it's B.C. or A.D., B.C. being before Christ, A.D. being uh, the initials for the Latin, meaning the year of our Lord. That's the way our calendars have been divided, all pivotal to the birth of Christ until secular science has come, to come around and trying to remove Christ out of everything that is happening in our world. They say it should be called BCE, before common era, and then CE as common era. Interestingly, changing that moniker does not change the point at which BCE changes to CE. It still changes around the birth of Christ. The birth of Jesus for those who lived, the birth of Jesus who lived before him. Let me try that all over again. Every once in a while, I let my brain get ahead of myself and I need to start all over. The birth of Jesus is pivotal. And for those who lived before his birth, his birth will be monumental. Think about that. If we're talking about history, those who lived before Jesus was born, the the coming of the Christ, the first advent, will be monumental. For those who were alive when he was born and when he walked this earth and when he was doing his ministry, his life is monumental. And for those of us who live after the coming of Christ, we look back on that birth and we see that that birth, that time in Bethlehem was monumental. The Old Testament points forward to his coming. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us about his birth and his ministry, about his life, about his death and his resurrection and his eventual ascension back to the Father. The book of Acts, if you will, tells us of the spreading of the Gospel. It tells us of the the sharing of that good news by the apostles, by the Apostle Paul there in the first century. Then we have in the New Testament pastoral letters of Paul and Peter, James, Jude, and John. These are discipling in nature. They give us instruction on how we are to live a life that looks like Jesus. It's in the present moment of your life. Here's how you live it presently. But you see, the revelation that God gave to John once again looks forward. It looks to the second advent, the consummation of the age when the second coming of Christ occurs. That moment we're all looking forward to still. He, the Old Testament folks looked forward to his birth of the Messiah. We as New Testament believers look forward to the second advent, to his coming again. So all in all, God's word begins looking forward to the first advent. It gives us instruction for our living in the now, in our present Christian life. And then it ends again looking forward to his second coming. This morning, on this first Sunday of the advent season, as we focus in and we celebrate the birth of Christ, we have lit this first candle. 
Now, there's nothing magical about this candle. It's simply an Advent season. We use that as a, as a way to represent the, the coming of Jesus. We use that to talk about the hope that comes with that coming. Next week, we will talk about the preparation that happens. We will talk about the joy that the shepherds have and the peace that we all have. That's what the Advent season is about. But this hope candle, this prophecy candle is, is where we will begin. And as we begin... I feel like it's always important to begin at the beginning. What was God's message to those in the Old Testament? What was God's message to those who were alive before his coming? You see, the message of hope, the message of the prophets, is a message of prophecy. Hope is found in that message. So hope, the message of prophecy, is where you first fill in on your bulletins. In its most basic form, and we don't often think about this, but the Old Testament in, as a whole is a prophetic message. It's all pointing to the coming of Messiah. It's true that there are different genres. It's true that there is historical narrative and there's poetry. There is personal and national lament found there in the Old Testament. There is both prophecy that is forth-telling, just telling it like it is, telling the truth. How many times did Elisha or Elijah stand before the king and tell them exactly what is real? And then there is foretelling, telling the prophetic message of what is to come, what is to happen. All of this is happening in the Old Testament, but in general, all of it is pointing to moving through history of how this world came to be, including the creation of Adam and Eve, who were placed in a garden in Eden. The Old Testament describes what went wrong when they sinned. They, they ate of the fruit that was forbidden. They destroyed the relationship. Just those two alone destroyed humanity's relationship with its creator. And because of their sin, we find in, in Genesis chapter 3, we find the first blood sacrifice where God sacrificed the animals to make clothing out of their skins to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve as they stood before God. This is the first picture of what would be needed to clothe our sinful nakedness before God as a people, as a humanity. The first allusion to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. You see, the Old Testament explains the grace and the mercy of the Father, along with His enduring patience and His plan that was in motion for this redemption to happen. You see, there had to be redemption of sin. There had to be reconciliation of a broken relationship. There had to be a moment where we were redeemed and able to come back to Him. And the plan involved the calling of a man named Abram, who later had his name changed to Abraham who had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob. And after a WWE wrestling match with Jesus one night, Jesus changes Jacob's name to Israel. So now Jacob, Israel, has 12 boys that we know as the 12 tribes of Israel. They're called the Israelites because they are the children of Israel. They are the children of Jacob. The bulk of the Old Testament is historical narrative but not to necessarily get the point that these people are unfaithful to God. The point of the Old Testament, the point that it moves toward all along is God's faithfulness to his people. God is faithful even when the children of Israel are not. God is faithful to these people that he has made a covenant with that began with Abraham. Abraham. 
He is faithful when they sin against him. He is faithful when they turn their back on him. Story after story, book after book of the Old Testament, pointing to the fact no matter what the people did, God remained faithful to his covenant. God is always faithful. We are not. We need a message like we find in the Old Testament to remind us that we today have a faithful God even when we ourselves are not faithful. And you see, the prophecies of the Old Testament are they're filled with judgment. And we know those prophecies. We've read Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and all the other minor prophets and major prophets. We've read all of those. We know about God saying, you will be taken into captivity. You will have this country come against you. You will suffer great loss. You will have these things. And as I studied for this week and looked at all of these different prophecies, the things I was finding in, in what gave me peace and what gave me hope is that the judgment of God in these prophecies, if you read just a little further, was followed with a message of hope for his people. For example, there is judgment being prophesied against Israel for their unfaithfulness to God. In Jeremiah chapter 21, beginning in verse 8, we read, and to this people you shall say, thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and shall have life as a prize of war. So yeah, you'll live, but you're going to be in bondage. For I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. This is, this is somewhere around 608 uh, B.C. This is, this is when the Babylonians are coming in to bring uh, the, 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 the captivity of Babylon into, Jer- into Judah. They were going to besiege Jerusalem. That's the city being talked about. He says, you can stay. If you want to stay in Jerusalem, that's fine. The walls are there. The gates are shut. Eventually, they're going to break through. And if you stay, you will be reaping the consequences of hanging out here. People are going to die. You'll either die from the sword or you'll die from famine and pestilence because they have blocked off all of the food that you got coming into town. You're going to be stuck here. It's going to be a very unpleasant place to be. But you can stay if you want. I say, God says, you need to go on out. You need to surrender yourselves to them. You need to surrender yourself to the Babylonians. You will be a prize of war, but you will live. That's quite the message. If you read just a little further, go all the way down to Jeremiah 23. Two chapters later, beginning in verse 3, we read the start of hope. He says, then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. There was prophecy of judgment. 
God was saying, you didn't do it my way. I set before you life and death. He told him all the way back in Deuteronomy, I set before you life and death. You do it my way and I will bless you. You step out from under my, my plan and you will be left with the curses of this world and you will be cursed. You will not have the blessings that you are looking for. You can do it my way or you can do it your way. My way leads to blessings. Your way leads to death. And he now says, even though that's true, I am faithful. God is faithful to his people. And even though they may deserve his punishment, even though they may deserve his discipline, even though they deserve what they've got coming, he says, I am faithful to who I am and to the covenant I made. And one day I am sending someone. And that's the Messiah they're looking forward to. They're looking ahead. So, so when Israel was against God, when Israel needed to have prophecies of judgment, God gave them. But don't miss also that there was prophecy against nations that mistreated Israel. Look at Isaiah chapter 34, beginning in verse 1. He says, draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. On down to verse 8, he says, For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion, the benefit of his people. For the benefit of those who follow him and who he calls his own. He will have vengeance for them. I don't know about you. But don't, don't come against my children. As strong as I want to be for the name of Jesus, as much as I want to be someone who, who puts aside my own desires, as much as I want to follow the path God would have for me, one of the quickest things that I have to fight against is when I have to turn from a teddy to a grizzly. I'll be a teddy bear with you, but you come against my family, and it's all I can do not to take your head off. You know what I mean? Got any, got any parents in the room who know that? You know how hard it is. Imagine God. He doesn't look favorably on those who mistreat his people, on those who mistreat his children. Mistreating his children is paramount to rebellion against him. But while the mistreatment is happening, while the mistreatment of his people is occurring, he has a message for those who claim to be his. He has a message for those who are his children. Out of, if you go a couple chapters later, Isaiah 35 verse 4, he says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. The day is coming. We have trouble being patient to that day. We want to take vengeance in and of ourselves. We, you treat me wrong, I'm coming after you. You treat me wrong, I'm going to go after my agenda. You treat, we're unable for some reason to sit back and look at the hope that comes with being a child of God. Because God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's not for us to do it. He says, no matter what you're going through, no matter how the world is crushing in on you, no matter how health is with you right now, no matter what you're having to deal with, hang on, child. He is coming, and he will save you. Sometimes that saving doesn't happen on this side of heaven. 
Sometimes we pray for those we love to be healed. Sometimes we pray for those we love to to have an opportunity of a miracle happen in their life, for God to heal them. Sometimes, though, God says, you know, I'm going to give them the ultimate healing because it is so much more than just this world we're dealing with. This is just a temporary place. You've heard the old pastor say it. We're all just passing through. There is a time, there is a place that we will live for eternity without the suffering. And, And sometimes we are praying hard for our loved ones to be with us when they would be perfect on the other side. They would be perfect and healed. And I, listen, I understand. I understand where that comes from because we know we'll miss them. We know we'll need need to have those moments. We'll have those times of of missing them and and it'll be a time of, of grieving and it'll be hard But sometimes it's harder on us because we don't have the right eyes to see. We don't always have the right perspective that they're not with us on this earth, but they're with him in heaven if they knew him. Oh my, why do we pray sometimes to keep our loved ones out of heaven when it would be so much better for them to be there and be perfect? Time after time, prophecy of judgment is followed with prophecy of hope. We know the history of Israel. Just as the passage is alluded, they were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Eventually, a decree was given by the Babylonian king Cyrus that said they could go home. The Jews could return back to Jerusalem. They could rebuild their temple. They could rebuild their walls. They could live in this postage stamp area right around Jerusalem instead of the entire promised land they were once given. But they could still live and they would be reigned and but they would be overruled again by overlords, by other nations. They never would have their own sovereignty, if you will, until 1948. But God knew where they were. Sometimes we, we put our own rights ahead of God and we put our own desires ahead of God when if we sit back and we look and we listen, God's still taking care of us. There is still hope. The prophecies of God are fulfilled. God said, you would be held captive, and they were. God said, you will be allowed to return to your homeland, and they did. All of this was in the moment of history, but it was all pointing forward, painting a picture of the ultimate hope to come from Messiah. You see, it all, every bit of it points to Jesus. And then we have a prophecy that we're all familiar with out of Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God prophesied it would happen through Isaiah. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, we read where this is fulfilled. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that we talk about prophecies of the Old Testament? Why does it matter that we look at these times, at this time of year in particular, to look forward to the coming of Jesus, which for us is in the past? It's already happened, Kenan. Why do we look in the Old Testament for this prophecy? Why does it really matter? Well, number one, it matters because fulfilled prophecy shows us that we can trust God's word. What he says, he will do. 
Secondly, us talking about having hope infers that there is a reason to need hope in the first place. Way back in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Their death was spiritual. The immediate death was spiritual. And once they ate of that fruit, the clock started ticking on their, their eventual physical death. But the immediate death in that moment, they were separated at that moment for eternity from God unless God did something to fix it. We also know about the mercy God showed when he removed them from the garden. Some could read that passage and think, well, God's being kind of mean to them. First he, first he puts them in a place where they're tempted. Well, we want to have free will, Right? So we can't complain about, about being tempted with things and then say, but we want free will. It goes hand in hand. You can't have your cake and eat it too. So he says, you say, it's mean of God. They, they made a mistake, sure, but he's kicked them out of the garden. Why? Because they were, it says in Matthew, or excuse me, in Genesis 3, they were, God was fearful that they would then reach and eat of the tree of life. And if they ate of the tree of life in a fallen state, they would be in a fallen state for eternity. So God has to have a plan. And he had a plan from the beginning. As is on the screen, we have Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He says, I will put enmity, or I will make an enemy between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. He's talking to the personification of Satan here. And he says, between your offspring and her offspring, he, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Dr. David Chapman tells us that this passage has traditionally been understood as pointing forward to the defeat of the serpent by a future descendant of the woman. We know that to be Satan being defeated by Jesus Christ. We know that his work on the cross defeated the grave. We know that his work on the cross was enough to redeem us and to put us back into right relationship, to reconcile the relationship that Adam and Eve broke. He, we know that he did that for us. We also know when we get into Revelation, there is still study of, of the great dragon being defeated by the Son of Man. We find there that, that it's the it's prophecy that's going to be fulfilled eventually that we're looking forward to. But for now, it gives us hope. This is the first announcement of the gospel. This is the first prophecy for the hope that humanity would have in the coming of Jesus Christ. So before his coming, the message of prophecy was hope. But with his coming, we find that the Messiah's ministry of reconciliation, the Messiah's ministry of reconciliation, that is also hope. You see, Jesus came when the time was just right. It tells us in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, that's another way of saying when everything was set just right, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So why was the time right? Why was the time just right in that first century? You see, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, they were being ruled by Rome. But before Rome came into play was the great Alexander the Great being the one who was ruling the world. And he had conquered all the known world. Alexander the Great had a way of, of destroying your culture by mingling it with his. He controlled you by removing your culture out of the way, even going as far as to saying, you have to speak our language. So the entire known world, when Jesus came, spoke Greek. The entire known world could communicate together. 
We, we don't have that today. If it wasn't for our, our being able to learn a different language every once in a while, you know, think about you go to Germany, you got to know German. You go to France, you got to know French. Parlez-vous français? You go to Japan, you got to be able to speak Japanese, or you better have a good app that can convert it for you and they can hear what you're trying to say. In that day, they could travel the entire known world spreading the gospel because everyone spoke the same language. After the Persians, after Alexander the Great, came Rome who created roads and made travel not only easier, but safe. Because along these roads, every so often, about every mile, there was a centurion post. So you could travel safely. Paul could travel safely on his missionary journeys all around the known world because he was able to travel on these roads the Romans had made to share the gospel. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son Why? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions, adoption as sons. He came to fix the problem. We had to be redeemed so that we had to be set free from our sin so that we could have a relationship with the Father. Jesus came and he fixed that. And when you come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, it's interesting. If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look what it says. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He isn't taking your old heart and tweaking it. He isn't taking your old wants and adjusting them so you'll be more moral. He isn't taking the old you and making you version 2.0. He's not just updating who you are. He is making you a new person. That gives me hope. Because I know who I am without Jesus. I know the temptations I struggle with. I know the things I would be doing if I wasn't a follower of his. If his spirit hasn't been changing me, I know what I would struggle with. I don't want to be just a better version of Kenan. I want to be the new person that he has created me to be. And prayerfully, you do as well. The writer of Hebrews gives us a picture of this hope. Our being secured in salvation through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Look at Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. He says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his promise, or his purpose, which, whew, if you've done any studying in Hebrews, the Hebrew writer is wordy. He says a lot to say one thing. Basically, he's saying he's, God is going to make a point. He wants to be even better understood. He wants to make sure you are convinced that the people were convinced that he has not changed his character and that he does still have the same purpose. And he guaranteed it, it says, with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. Why? To hold fast to the hope set before us. You see, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That's a reference to going into the Holy of Holies. This whole section in Hebrews is talking about Jesus being the great high priest for us and that he has access into the Holy of Holies on our behalf. He, the hope Jesus that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf 
having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I don't know if we have any ladies pregnant this morning, but if you're having a son, there's a great name because I want to see them spell it all their life. Melchizedek. Jesus is the forerunner. Did you catch what it said there in verse 20? Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Keep in, you got to keep in mind the picture of the temple or, or the tabernacle and the holy of holies that's with it. The revelation tells us that the temple and the tabernacle were a, were a picture, a model of the heavenly throne room. So when they walked into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God was there. If anyone who was unholy, if anyone who was sinful and and still unclean from their sin, if they walked into the Holy of Holies without the blood of a sacrifice, God would strike them dead. Because anytime, don't miss this, anytime unrighteousness comes into contact with the holiness of God, a death is required. Jesus paid that. He walks into the Holy of Holies. He is now ascended in the actual throne room in the presence of God on our behalf. We are covered with his blood. Don't miss it said he is a forerunner. Forerunners go where the people who are following go next. This message is full of hope that we will be in the presence of God. Just as he walked in as the forerunner, we will one day walk in as well because we are covered in the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is our ticket into the presence of God. You see, the message of the Old Testament prophecy is hope that culminates at the birth of Christ. His birth gives us hope knowing his work on the cross has reconciled us to our Father. And as we wait, we do so with continued hope. Why? Because he will return. And as we start to look at this third point quickly, I had a conversation before this service started knowing that 11 a.m. is 12 a.m. or 12 p.m. Eastern. Some of you are on pins and needles. Just wait. It's all you can do not to pull your phone out and Google what the, what the committee has decided Some of you, some of you have already looked. That anticipation, oh, look at it, they're talking about it. What'd you find out, Bill? That anticipation of waiting to find something out, that pins and needles, I just can't wait till this service is over. I've got to know what is, what's real. That That anxiousness should be our anxiousness for his return. You understand? You say, Kenan, I love Jesus. Compare those in your life. Do you have that kind of anxiousness? We have hope because he will return. How do we know he will return? Well, he told us he will. Remember, we started back with the prophecies of the Old Testament, and we said it's important to study those because what he said he would do, he has done, and that means we can trust him. He says he will return. Look at Hebrews 9, verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, because he's already done that, but to save those 
who are eagerly waiting for him. In Revelation 22, we read beginning in verse 12, he said, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. That tree we couldn't eat from. That tree that he cast Adam and Eve out of the garden so that they would not eat of it and live for eternity in a fallen state, separated from him. Now we are reconciled to him, and for eternity we get to eat from the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. The birth of Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies that bring hope. The birth of Christ led to his life and ministry, a life that ended in his sacrifice for our sins and reconciled us to the Father. And that gives us hope. Because just like we wait, or just like the Old Testament folks waited for that first advent, we are waiting for the promise of the second one. I mentioned in the first service that there's a song I've been listening to. Mercy Me is one of my favorite, um, my favorite groups. In fact, for a long time, I know I'm, I'm stepping into, I'm stepping into an area here that I'm, I might get in trouble. Uh, as a kid growing up, up until about five or six years ago, I would tell you the best, my favorite, not, not necessarily the best. You might not think they're the best, but my favorite music band was Alabama. Come on. You got to have some mountain music, right? I, we, we had our staff Christmas dinner this past Friday night, or I would have been in Huntsville seeing Alabama. But since then, in the last five or six years, I've come to realize Mercy Me is actually my favorite band now. Of all genres, Mercy Me. And Bart Millard wrote a song, and I was going to ask Wason to learn it for this morning and let him do it as a special, but I didn't think that was fair since this thought came to me on Friday. <laughs> so I thought I'd just read you some lyrics. Because they, it's, it's what we're talking about. For those of us who need hope today, we don't have to wait until we're grieving to think about the hope that others have. We don't have to grieve like others who have no hope. We can grieve. We don't have to wait for that. We have hard times now. Life gets hard. We need to be reminded today that there is a hope. And Bart wrote some great words in this song called Almost Home. He starts with, are you disappointed? Are you desperate for help? You know what it's like to be tired and only a shell of yourself? Well, you start to believe you don't have what it takes because it's all you can do just to move, much less finish the race. I know that describes many of us today. I know there are health issues going on. Those who are are home health keepers of those who are struggling in their families. I know you may have your own health issues. You may have life in general is hard. You may be having marriage issues. You may be having family issues. You may be having work issues. Life is hard, and it's hard to just move, much less finish the race. He said, but don't forget what lies ahead. That's a hint at hope, right? He says, you're almost home. Brother, it won't be long Soon all your burdens will be gone. With all your strength, sister, run wild, run free. Hold up your head. Keep pressing on. Why? Because we're almost home. 
I'm going to ask the band to come, and I'm going to finish reading these lyrics as they get set. Listen to this next verse. This road will be hard. Not maybe, could be, should be. This road will be hard. But we win in the end. Simply because of Jesus in us, it's not if, but when. So take joy in the journey. Even when it feels long. Find strength in each step knowing heaven is cheering you on because we're almost home. Hebrews tells us that we have a multitude of witnesses that we can look to. They're cheering us on. Revelation talks about the saints cheering us on. But listen, listen to this bridge and I'll close. I know that the cross has brought heaven to us. Make no mistake, there's still more to come. When our flesh and our bone are no longer between where we are right now and where we're meant to be. When, it's, when all that's been lost is made whole again, when these tears and this pain no longer exist, no more walking, we're running as fast as we can, consider this our second wind. We are almost home. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what you're dealing with today. I don't know. You may just need a reminder that the story of Christmas is hope. And not hope for just you one day on a deathbed, but hope for you right now.